When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic UK. And of course, today we're going to be previewing Friday's massive match between Fulham and Bournemouth at Craven Cottage. And of course, the talk is all around one man. The narrative centres around him. He switched allegiances for pastures greener. Of course, that is Peter Rutzler, who <laughs> left for Bournemouth to Fulham two seasons ago. There's going to be chance for him on both sides of the ground. Some positive, maybe some negative. Who knows? And the great man is here on the podcast today. He can spare us five minutes out of his busy schedule. Peter Rutzler, hello. Hello. I was just thinking about this. I feel like... If you become the story, that's not right. Although I'm not sure if that's like a, a press officer thing. You know, like uh, in the thick of it, um, where, you know, once, <laughs> once Malcolm Tucker becomes a story, he's gone. Um, this is becoming a bit like that, isn't it? It's becoming a bit much. But anyway, hello, Sammy. And Jack Collins, hello. Hello, Sammy. Hello, Peter. Hello, listeners. How are we? Fine, thank you. I jest, of course, Scott Parker really is the man where the narrative centres around, even though we like to pretend that it's Peter. A massive game on Friday. First versus second. Old manager against new... I mean, it was no shock that this one was picked for telly and the big, big championship game of the season so far. So we're going to preview that. We'll do a final word on Preston from the weekend as well. And I've got a stack full of emails as well. I am loving the emails that come in for this show, as do Jack, as does Peter. So we're going to read some of those out at the end. Um, So before we kind of get on to the Bournemouth game and everything around that, let's just discuss Preston on Saturday. Peter, it was a really, really difficult afternoon um it in so many ways obviously the result was difficult the refereeing was diabolical at times and just even getting to Preston sounded like a nightmare so how was it for you yeah a, a difficult day all told I think you've summed it up quite nicely there Sammy I did feel for a lot of fun fans trying to make it up on the day I was quite lucky with my train I got in okay I mean there were a couple of stops while you know the snow just sort of swirled around the train and you thought oh, is this, is this going to happen but um, obviously that sort of career and made it a lot more difficult. So fair play to everyone who set out and, and also to those who, who got there as well. It was a, a tough, tough task. And to be honest, the performance wasn't exactly thrilling, not by Fulham standards this year either. And um, I just felt like one of those they had to get through in the end. I mean, the first 20 minutes were great. It looked like things were going swimmingly, felt like the team might run away with it. Another, another good day out. Um, but then it just felt like fatigue, didn't it? I think that was the overriding feeling for me anyway. Um, it, it was an odd one, and I think I've, I wrote about this after the game because Silver talked up the fact that, you know, obviously there's a sharp turnaround and the EFL should be protecting players more with a schedule, and but then didn't make any changes, um, which, which felt like an odd thing to do. And 
And I can get it. I can get the fact that, you know, you, if you're in the starting 11, you earn the shirt, you keep your place. And that's quite an important thing to maintain within the squad. And he doesn't like to mix things up. But at the same time, Fulham have a very good squad and they probably should maybe use it a bit more. And, and you know, with the cushion they got to the playoffs, did they really need to, to risk some of those players who were coming back from, from illness and, and whatever else? But, you know, still emerge with the point, despite that shocking refereeing decision. Last time we had one of them was Coventry and it didn't end so well. So, you take the positives, um, take a nice nice gap before a big one on Friday. Yeah, I mean, people talk about refereeing decisions coming around and going around. And whilst I do broadly think that's true, it does feel this season like we are very much on the receiving end. I would say 3-1. If I think about the goal for Bristol City, the Coventry penalty, and then that goal on Saturday, maybe the West Brom penalty can be the one that I think has gone for us this season. So it definitely feels like we're we're owed a, a slice of luck. We've definitely had a few decisions go against us this year. I mean, Jack, it's, it's as you were at the top of the table. A Apart from the fact that actually QPR are now in third, they've leapfrogged West Brom. Finally, West Brom have had some sort of penance for their terrible form. Yep. Bournemouth drew with Coventry with one of the flukiest equalisers you've ever seen um, from Todd Kane. But we were all very, very excited on the uh, Fulhamish WhatsApp when that one came through. Yeah, and- it felt like it. It, we've got we've got away with one really, but also last nine games. Even though those you've had those two draws, we're still on two point five points a game. You yeah. said it weeks ago. We need two points a game between now and the end of the season, and we are promoted most likely as champions. Yeah, I, I think so. I think two points. Well, I think two points a, a, a per game is enough to get you up automatically. Perhaps not as champions if the pace continues at this kind of frenetic rate. Um, but I also think that we're seeing a little bit with Bournemouth at the moment that kind of drop off that I was expecting. Um, look, I, that's not to say by any stretch of the imagination they're not a good side because they are and they need to be given due respect. Um, but I do think that we're seeing them regress a little bit to the mean. And I think actually where you look at the Fulham results, you're thinking, oh, we were a little bit unlucky, obviously, against Preston with the decision, not in terms of performance, um, but in terms of the decision that went against us, which was the big turning point, right? That is the the game that stops you being, the goal that stops you being in the lead and stops you winning the game, given exactly what happened afterwards. Um, and against Derby, where I thought we just, you know, lacked a little bit, but we weren't we weren't miles off there either. So I actually think we, with the last two games of Fulham, We've kind of created a fair bit against Derby. Um, and in the Preston game, we were denied by an incorrect decision. So when you look at those two things in comparison to actually, yes, that fluky equaliser from Coventry was a bit lucky and absolutely spot on. Um, but in Bournemouth's last couple of games, I think we started to see them regress a little bit to perhaps um, slightly more how I expected them to you know, play this season and also to pick up the kind of amount of points that they were expected to get this season. So that's a good thing if we get back up to, you know, where we're at and stay above two points a game, I think Fulham going to be all right. I mean, Peter, it was, it was hard to tell from the telly, but did it just look like some of the players who were out on their feet? Mitrovic felt particularly sluggish. It, it just feels like Marcus Silva tried to go with his first 11 in order to maybe win the game early and then hopefully rest. And it just very much didn't have much fruition other than the first 20 minutes, really. I think maybe they jaded quicker than Silver would have expected. Yeah, because those that first 20 minutes was, was you know, typical Fulham, the Fulham we've seen in a lot of games this year where they were just camped in the Preston half. They were turning the ball over time and time again. Every time Preston were trying to come out, they were pinned back in a five. I mean, it was pretty comfortable. Um, got the breakthrough, which was for a set piece, which has happened quite a few times this season. You know, when there is that block, 
it's the one thing that Fulham can also throw in. And I think that's such a massive asset is just being able to just take a goal from a set play. Another brilliant ball in from Jean-Michel Serri and a very rare goal from, from Tim Ream. Um, but it, it did just feel like they faded. I, they, it was one of those things where it wasn't a case of they didn't look like they were trying. It was just they were a foot behind Preston. I think once Preston, you know, there were a couple of refereeing decisions actually that really got the crowd up and that also did help them. But they were just, they were winning the 50-50s. They were winning the second balls. Um, the second pass for Fulham, the second and third pass was always slightly off. It was always on the wrong foot of the, of the teammate. Um, and it just felt like by the time they'd won the ball back, they were, they were exhausted, which is not something we're, we're used to with, with, with a silver Fulham team. So um, in the end, that, that sort of did for them and, and Preston with their tails up were, were very good, actually. They were very good at pinning Fulham back and they never, they didn't create too many clear opportunities, but you know they, they forced their luck and, and, and obviously the, the decision denied Fulham probably the, the three points. Um, but yeah, I, I think visually they did look look tired and um, or fatigued or, or just that sort of after effect. And, and, and that, that had a big impact for sure. I mean, Jack, just on the refereeing decision, what part of it did you think was the biggest... <laughs> I can't believe you're asking me this. I, I know what you're trying to say. And I mean, look, you guys. What was the just, biggest wrong? What, what was the biggest it? wrong? Was it the handball? Was it the offside? Well, which of the handballs to begin with? Was it the offside? Was it the foul on the Push keeper? Push on um, Marek Rodak. Yeah. I mean, look, we just got to put it, chalk it down as a decision that they got wrong. And, uh, and no, 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 no. You can't cop out. You've got to pick one. You can't, well, you pick can't, one. What was the yeah, worst decision? What was the worst offence? What was the offence of the, what, five or six or. I well, I mean, probably I think others. I think for me, probably the offside because yeah, the the yeah. rest of it, you actually can go. Okay, there's a bit of pinball in the box. Yes, it probably rules it out in terms of a handball, but the offside's the one that people should be able to spot, right? That's a that's a ricochet and and, and an offside, and so that one's the one for me. I think that if I was gonna if I was gonna give you an answer, but I do think we just you know have those decisions, and also especially when everything's up, the crowd are up, et cetera, et cetera, as Peter says here. You know, the referee is more likely to give a decision in favour of the home crowd. That that you know that happens. It happens everywhere. It's it's kind of natural, and without anything to check it, um, you're always going to look at it and go. Unfortunately, that's that's the case. And you know, I, I suppose we should probably say that Preston, you know, were were decent value for a point. That's the that's the key element here, right? It's not that you know I said it at the start. They didn't create loads. They didn't create loads of clear cup opportunities. They didn't cut Fulham apart, but. We weren't great. And I think sometimes you look at that and go, you know, should Fulham have won because the goal that was scored shouldn't have counted? Yes. Were Preston value for a point? Also, yes. That's okay. Anyway, no point crying over spilt milk. We'll move on and we'll take a break. And afterwards, we'll preview Bournemouth on Friday. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And man of the moment, Peter Rutzler. Hello. Um, Peter is on the Fulham website uh, doing uh, an interview. Uh, if you want to read it, um, if you head to fulhamfc.com, uh, it's a fantastic article kind of giving Peter's opinion on uh, both sides. Are you going to be on the Bournemouth website as well, Peter, later this week? Yeah, rumour has it, end of the week, some will say. So, nice. Yes. And of course, in The Athletic, Peter has done a very, very long read. It's fantastic. It's called Mitchvich Seri Cabano, Shunned by Parker, starring for Silver in Fulham's promotion push. And it's looking ahead to Friday. The narrative around Parker 
what has changed since the summer the turbulence in the summer uh, and it's a fantastic read if you want to go read it it's on the athletic app right now go to the athletic.com forward slash fulham pod if you would like to sign up um jack you said in the break that you had something to read i don't know what this is i feel a little bit out of control um but the floor is yours my friend well we got a brilliant dm about a month ago um, from TJ, who's uh, at TJ Foggs 46, um, who basically said, can we call the Bournemouth match the Spider-Man game because it's the Peter Parker derby? Very good. Very good. I wanted Excellent. to give it the due credit that it deserved because I thought it was very good at the time. Um, I've, it's taken me ages to find it again as well because obviously it's like a month ago in the DMs. Um, but I thought, it was a, I thought it was worthwhile finding because it was good. I love that you sat on it for all that time as well. Just uh, exceptional. He's just known the day he wants to drop it in. Um, Peter, look, it is a game that is very much um, circling both of your interests. We know that you covered Bournemouth for the season that they went down. And, and even since then, you've still been kind of a bit around Bournemouth and, and covering what they've done for the past year or so. It's a remarkable how many narratives this game has Parker obviously at the center of it and two clubs who are having brilliant seasons, but have gone about it in different ways. There's different philosophies right from the top all the way down. Um, what, what do you make then of, of Friday's game and its significance? It's quite, quite unusual to have a game with so much narrative like this. Um, it's, you know, hard to sort of ignore, um, not, nothing to do with me. I think should, park that but in terms of the fact that Scott Parker has gone there um, the fact that both teams are a cut above at, at, so far this season in the championship um, and as you say Sammy they, they're doing things in different ways both in terms of style of play um, and also how the, the clubs are, are structured and their stories um, it's a very interesting one I think if we start with with style of play like I think I'm tempted to say attack v defence which isn't strictly true because, yeah. because Fulham have been very good defensively and that's probably been one of the more unexpected sides of, of what Silva's been able to do this year. Um, but in a more general sense, the way Bournemouth play, and, and Fulham fans will be familiar with this, the way they try and grip games, hold them, control them, squeeze the life out of them, that's, that's, that's Parker's way of playing. But he seems to have been able to do it in a far more effective way so far um, on the South Coast. And then, of course, we've, we've talked about Fulham endlessly in terms of the amount of goals they're scoring. Um, their ability to be ruthless, the fact they have no sympathy when they play opponents, you know, a one goal margin, two goal margins, good, but we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep scoring three, four, because that's who we are. That's how we play. Um, and it is all set up so nicely and it's, it's going to be a great night under the lights. It's sold out at, at Craven Cottage. Um, both teams have had a slight wobble, Bournemouth more than Fulham. Obviously, it's hard to say Fulham had a wobble if you're nine unbeaten. Um, but Bournemouth have suffered with injuries, uh, particularly at the back, and that's been quite important um, in their most recent games. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see who they have available for that. Scott Parker, I went to his presser today um, in Bournemouth. It was very coy about all team use, and I suppose you would be if it's two days before the actual game. Um, so it's it's going to be very fascinating to see how the two teams set up and, and, and just what the game means as well. Um, does this mean more to Fulham. Do Fulham need to win? Do the players need to win to be like, look, this is how good we can be to show Scott Parker what he's missing. And then on the flip side, is it Scott Parker going, look what I can do somewhere else in a different setup, doing things the way that I prefer to do them. 
Um, so there's so much overlap and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, not one been waiting for, for a while. Yeah. Um, Jack, do you think that the Scott Parker factor will actually have an impact on the players? I mean, it was telling when Parker left that was, there was so few, if any, thanks gaffer. Thanks for the memories gaffer. I think reading between the lines, he wasn't popular in that dressing room anymore. Um, he's definitely not popular alongside Alexander Mitrovic. The fans really want to get one over Scott Parker. Do you think the players do? Well, you'd definitely hope so, wouldn't you? It's it's a bit like anything in life, right? If someone you feel has wronged you or, or done you a little bit dirty or, or given you more of a hard time you deserved or not given you your fair share of chances or attributions, you want to prove them wrong, right? In, in any walk of life. And I imagine that you know part of this is is all season long right it's over the course of the season Fulham will want to finish above Bournemouth because they'll want to finish above Scott Parker and be like ha you were wrong could have done this with the squad um and we could have scored more and do I think that that's part of Alexander Mitrovic's insane goal scoring form yeah I do yeah I think he's you know he's out with a point to prove and there's there's lots left in that to to say it. Do I think that that can go one of two ways? Also, yes, right. You can. There's a bit where sometimes with a football match you're just trying a bit too hard, and you know sometimes you just got to relax and let it come to you. And we know that Fulham have the capacity to to score goals, to to entertain, to be fun and influential. And look, Bermorte said it this week, didn't he? He came out and said uh, it's the show. People come to see the show. They don't, you know, they're not here just just to grind out one nils or whatever. It's about putting on a performance and. And that's what we've seen from Fulham across the course of this year. Now, Scott Parker clearly thinks of football in a little bit of a different manner to that. And that's fine, right? There is more than one way to skin a cat. Um, but on the whole, you look at what this is and what it means. And you've got to be thinking for players like Mitrovic, for players like Cabano, for players like Seri. As Peter said in his article this week, this means just that wee bit more, just to be like, hey, mate, you were wrong. You were so wrong about us. And we're proving it by not only coming out on top of you in the league. And obviously there's a kind of spice in that, that if Bournemouth were to win this game, they go back above Fulham and, and there's that, that element of it as well. So, you know, it's not only going, okay, we're making a statement here, a blow, you know, a blowout win against uh, your nearest rival is a massive statement in what the division is. Um, but also there's this kind of separate run at the same time where you're looking at it and going, okay, we want to get one over and, and also increase that lead and, and prove a point in, in all the ways that we possibly can. I just am a little bit concerned about the fire um, and, you know, the the kind of build up in the dressing room and what it means and it just all maybe getting a bit emotional and a bit much. Yeah. Um, what's the feeling in the Bournemouth camp, Peter? Obviously you said you were there today. Um, are they as determined as us? Is this a little bit more of a one-way rivalry? Obviously, Bournemouth are going to want to go there and, and win the match and Bournemouth fans are going to be up for it. Who wouldn't be up for a top-of-the-table um, game on a Friday night? But it does just feel like Fulham fans have that slight more determination to uh, to right some wrongs. Whereas for Bournemouth, I guess it's a little bit like, you know, it's just another, it's just a big game. I don't know. Or do they? Or is there an extra sense of the significance because of the back and forth between the two clubs? I think the game matters from a Bournemouth perspective more because of the run of form they're on as opposed to everything else that's swirling around it. I think if you're Scott Parker, you want to play this down as much as possible. You don't want those distractions because if you take in those distractions, it becomes about him and not the game itself. Um, we got a sense of that today. You know, he, he spoke, you know, he said he had fond memories of his time at Fulham. Um, you know, he, he hopes that he'll be remembered for, for the good things that he did there, both as a player and a coach. 
didn't want to get drawn on the Mitrovic Solanke thing. If you think back to that comment earlier in the season where he said that, that he didn't he didn't think that there was a better striker in the championship than Solanke. What did he say to that? He just said they're two very good strikers. Um and that was that was that on that front. Um <laughs> that feels like one of those classic responses you get on football manager, which yes, is just yeah, like can't the drawn on which says, subject, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Click the button that says they're both very good strikers and they've both got their own talents. <laughs> it would have been a done better if you just kicked Storm out. No, yeah. That would have been the moment for me. <laughs> that would have been very, very odd. Um so so from that side, yeah, I think it's a, it's a big game. As I said, their, their form hasn't been good. F6-4 without a win now for them. Um, they're aware of the challenge that Fulham pose. And I think from Fulham's side, it, maybe it matters more, and, and understandably so. Um, but, but, you know, as, as we were just saying, you know, this does matter. Like, clearly it does. You know, Parker's left Fulham to go to Bournemouth for because he thinks he's got a better chance of um, making a building a long-term vision, building a club, having more say. He said today, I asked him about that, and he said, you know, he feels like he's had that, he's probably been able to put his stamp on the club a bit more um, than he did at Fulham. So, you know, trying to almost prove a point, that's going to be there. But I think fundamentally, it's a game with two teams at the top of the table, and what matters is arresting their form and, and, and trying to put themselves in as commanding a position as possible in that hunt for, for promotion. Um, Jack, obviously Bournemouth, um, as Peter mentioned, have an injury crisis. They also are, have lost Jeff- Jefferson Lerma, who got sent off against Coventry. Seems to be in defence where they've got most problems. Um, Jefferson Lerma was playing centre-back um, on Saturday. Gary Cahill's injured. Kelly is also injured. There is rumours that Cahill might be back for the game, but it might be too soon. Um that's a big problem if if one of those three can't make it back. That's a big gap at centre-back. And of course, probably the one position on the pitch where they'd like to have their first strength um, players, given the form of Mitrovic. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's there's a couple of things going on there. And I'm sure that, you know, they're keeping it close to their chest because they're, they're desperate um, to kind of come up with a late fitness test and, and get one of those players on the pitch in order to try and combat. You know, when you've got a striker in this kind of form playing against a manager who wants to prove a point to, the one thing you really want going on there is you having your first choice centre-backs fit. And that's probably a point that they're, they're looking at and going, oh, God. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you have to you have to work with what you've got. Right? It's a championship everyone's going to have little crisis you know like little crises in the middle of it here and there you know across the course of the season theirs is unfortunate in that it's come up against us but you know we might be looking at this in six months time five months time and going oh this is a terrible time when we've got to play them in the reverse fixture so you know it happens goes around comes around etc etc we're all we're all going to have these moments and um and, and I'm sure they'll just be looking at it and going we've got to do the best we can with the squad we've got yeah, Peter, what kind of impact is the injury crisis having on on Bournemouth? I mean, there's still plenty of great players in this team. Um, for me, picking up Ryan Christie the way they did was was a fantastic signing. We know that Billing's a good player. Um, Jaden Anthony on the uh, kind of left back, left wing um, has been a real revelation for them. But Jefferson Lerma, to me, if I, most teams have like a key, right? One player in your team that you really, and, and for us, maybe that, that season feels like Seri. I don't know. There's arguments to that. Losing Jefferson Lerma feels massive. Yeah, he's an absolute shithouse. Um, And (laughs) to lose him is is massive. He's been massive for Bournemouth since they signed him. He's one of those players, I think, who obviously went through that period where he just picked up so many yellow cards, like just relentless numbers of of cards. It's 
caught up with him. But he was playing in defence for that game. And as much as Lerma has been important, I actually think the key loss has, has probably been Lloyd Kelly um, at centre-half. Now, Lloyd Kelly was signed from Bristol City. He's a player that's been looked at by some big clubs. And I think he's going to go quite a long way. Like He's, he's one of yeah. the best young centre-halves um, in the division. Um, he's got a really high ceiling. He's very good at playing out from the back. And he's become very important in the way Bournemouth build their, build their attacks. And both he and Gary Cahill have complemented each other nicely. And they've lost both, I think. It's going to be interesting because, I mean, we saw that change of shape, right, against Coventry for the first time. Now, it's not helped by, by Lerma getting sent off, obviously, but that's the first you know time we've seen Parker really stray from a four at the back this season, right? And mm. and that's interesting because it, it leaves him with questions, especially if there's not those players coming back and now Lerma out, how you fill those gaps, especially if you're running, you look, running short on defenders in the first place. I think that Parker might have fancied going three at the back for this game to try and deal with Fulham's threat in in there, and he'll have seen because he is a manager that studies opposition um, that Fulham have slightly struggled against teams that do play in that kind of shape. Um, so I'm a bit kind of there with, oh, is this one of those where you know he he looks at this and thinks I'd actually like to play three at the back, but I can't because I physically don't have the personnel. Yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to see what he goes with. I'd have this sneaky feeling one of the three is going to be back. One of yeah. them's going to pass a late fitness test. They're going to do it by hook, by crook, injections or whatever. Some, there's no way I feel like that none of those three play. We know from from last year and before we park with team news, it's just, you know, it's just almost irrelevant what he says, you know, unless yeah. it's long term. Yeah, exactly. Or you've seen them in it on crutches or something. Um, Jack, but Bournemouth going forward, I wanted to get your thoughts on Ryan Christie. I feel like he was an outstanding bit of business from Bournemouth. A fantastic player, one that I would love to have at Fulham. He seems to light up the pitch um, whenever he's on it. Um, he seems so dangerous on and off the ball. Obviously, he was magnificent as well for Scotland in, in some of their recent um, World Cup qualifiers. To me, from the outside, he seems like the obvious threat apart from, I know that Solanke's got the goals, right? But to me, it all seems about Ryan Christie and he's certainly the man who creates the most chances for Bournemouth. Yeah, he's, he's a wonderful footballer, right? And he was excellent at Celtic before this. And as you say, you know, often often very, very influential for Scotland. And look, I think you only need to go back, what, a year and a half or so when it was when Arsenal were being linked with him in, in the January window and then in the summer following that as well. Um, so this is a player who was, was linked with some of the you know, bigger teams in the Premier League. It's not a, it's not a, one of those that's obviously worked out for him um, because he's ended up at Bournemouth and that's no slight. It's just, there's a slight difference between the, those where he thinks, I think maybe he should have been uh, and where he is now. And he will look to be launching back into the Premier League as quickly as possible because I don't think if Bournemouth don't go up, we're going to see Ryan Christie there next year. I think he's a player with ambitions to kick on and play at, at, at the Premier League level and, and to really move on. So yeah, I, I think he's the danger man obviously as you say um Dominic Solanke's got the goals and I've been really really impressed with Jane Anthony down that down the left hand side as well but on the whole there's there's a lot going on here and and you have to look at Christie as that threat I'm really intrigued I think he'll obviously play off Solanke he was able he was given that free role in the game against Coventry and if they do go with a with three at the back and if they do go with two up top I'd imagine he's going to be just given that kind of roaming role and I'm intrigued as to who from Fulham decides that they're going to be the person to to sit on him because he does need to be tracked if he's just going to be given the freedom of the park I think one of the interesting things about Bournemouth this year is as Jack says has been Jaden Anthony and also Jordan Zamora on that left-hand side I think yeah. 
when when Parker took over, you looked at the squad because they were losing Arnaut Dunjuma. He was going to go, and he, he went to Villarreal, and you can see you know, it's a Champions League level player. You to to fill that void is is one thing, but then to to actually do it with a player that's come through in a category three academy, their weekly opposition is not that great. Um, I watched him and Anjumur a couple of times when I was covering the club. They they look very good. They've always looked very good. But to actually take them, put them into the first team, and, and for them to actually kick on in the way they have, I mean, Zamora has been excellent. He's injured at the moment. Whether he'll be available, I'm not sure. But um, both he and Anthony have done superbly well, and that's actually been one of the things probably that was quite unexpected, I think, from a Parker side. I know he has blooded some young players at Fulham, Carvalho, Rodak, but to do so at Bournemouth from the start, and they they have been a key part of how they've played in, in the championship, and that that's been that's been pretty impressive, and he'll be a threat for sure on that on that left if he's if he's playing there. And. Pisa, just as someone that's been in and around Bournemouth, what is the kind of model there? Why were they so keen to get Scott Parker? And you, well, I'd say, well, you say you broke it last season, but you said several times on several podcasts last season, and this was at times where Fulham were looking good in the Premier League, that Bournemouth wanted Parker and Bournemouth had wanted Parker the season before, but he got us promoted. You knew that there was always that interest and it wasn't a massive secret. What is it that they're trying to build there and that they see Scott Parker as this man that, that only he can, can save them? I think they, they wanted someone to do what Eddie Howe was doing but potentially not with the same overarching manager, I've got my hands in every pie sort of a approach because Eddie Howe, Eddie Howe built the club. So I've said this before, it was his club. Like he did everything or want, if anything was happening, he, he wanted to know about it. They wanted someone who could fit into a model where they wouldn't be spending a lot. They wouldn't be punching above their weight. They would have a manager who would coach players, build them, improve them, and then sell them on, try and follow that up. Because that's what Bournemouth were trying to do in the Premier League. If you look at the players they brought in, you know, David Brooks and uh, Dan Juma I mentioned before, um, Jack Stacey, uh, Chris Meppham, uh, Philip Billing was young when he signed him. That these, these are players that they all seem to have a resale value further down the line. And they wanted something like that. Um, and I think Parker, they saw as a young British coach who was playing what they saw as quite attractive style of play, quite consistent philosophy, a philosophy that they could you know, use throughout their, their age groups and help them to build on that front. Um, and like, you, you know, you're right. I mean, the first time it was mentioned to me was before the playoff final, before Fulham-Brentford, Scott Parker was mentioned, which was just after Eddie Howe left at Scott Parker. I mean, it was a odd one because like, well, he's not going to go, especially if Fulham go up. But, you know, they, they, they stayed true to that and they, they wanted him to oversee that project. Um, and that, that's that's sort of been where they're at. And it's become more important, actually, since they didn't get promotion last year, because once those parachute payments start declining, you've really got to, to get your recruitment right. You've really got to build upwards, just like Brentford have done um, uh, to get into the Premier League. And it's, it's that sort of way of, of approaching things, uh, that sort of modern, modern coaching approach, which is what, who they saw in, in Parker. Yeah. I mean, in lots of ways, Jack, I hear what Bournemouth are trying to build and I... I can imagine being that office, Scott Parker and Bournemouth selling him the dream and telling him all this stuff. And in some ways, I don't envy him the decision that he took. Do I agree with the way he went about it, trying to kind of play the two off each other? Absolutely not. But in lots of ways, and look, there's lots of things I like about Fulham. There's some things I don't. We do seem a little bit batshit mental sometimes in, in, in the way that we undergo transfers and recruitment, especially. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but it's it's a pretty crazy 
way that we do things and that Parker would have sat down in that room and gone a bit more of a long-term commitment, a club that's really trying to do things the right way, a nice place to live. I fully see the reason that he went. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think anyone can be like, oh, why would Scott Parker do that? Especially with, you know, the the amount of... Well, look, there was there was a fair amount of, of of grumbling right at the end of the last season and put ourselves cheap among that you know with the way that Fulham were playing with the way that Fulham refused to attack at some points when we needed points um you know there were there were questions being asked legitimate questions I'll, I'll put it out there but still questions being asked to Parker's style his management philosophy whether he could do things you know differently um you know all of these things right and and that makes it difficult I mean imagine he can hear that noise you know he hears the, the, the what's been being said about how he's playing and there's also in in so many ways obviously there's he'll get a an easier and I don't mean an easy but an easier ride from the press in the country because he's a young English manager trying to make his mark and I'm not talking about Peter here um but like you know he's got friends (laughs) he's got friends in the media he'll have players he played with looking after him and look it's come into focus recently with Onikata Solskjaer right um players defending him despite the fact that the position was at some point indefendable it felt like Parker got away with last year scot-free and no one was really criticizing him apart from the Fulham fan base so sometimes there is an element of do you start to believe your own hype do you start to believe the fact that you're like yeah I am a really good young English manager in this game who's working really hard and the Fulham fans don't seem to want me and they don't deserve me you know those start questions being chucked around right they they are things that you can think about now I don't think any of the criticism or some okay I don't think that all of the criticism was unfair i think that there was there was there was a reasonable amount of legitimate criticism about how parker's tenure ended and i think there's plenty of legitimate criticism about the way that as you said he played the two clubs off each other to try and get whatever he wanted out of that situation but um you can you're absolutely right i can see why you can go into a club and they can sell you a dream and go right here you are you can pick the players yes the transfer budget is smaller but you get complete control of it etc 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 and i can see why that would appeal to him but i can also suggest that you know Fulham were looking at getting rid of him for a reason um, and that reason was that they didn't think he was the person to recreate the style or the, the feel-good atmosphere around the place in order to get Fulham back up again two things could be right like one man's trash another man's treasure right it, there are things here and look he seems to be doing a very good job with Bournemouth in a squad that some people looked at and thought this might struggle um, and you can give him credit with for that without saying that he was the right man to take Fulham forward I think it's worth saying with the summer, as much as Parker can get criticism for the way it dragged out and the fact that it did compromise Fulham, Fulham also benefited from this ultimately because they outwardly they wanted to keep him. Two years left on his contract would not have been sacked. But it suit, it did suit them for Parker to move on because as we mentioned before, there were players that weren't used in the Premier League that were not exactly happy. Um, and it would have been a very tough task for Parker to pick those players up. And I think he would have clocked that. And that's probably why Bournemouth seems so appealing. But then also if you're Fulham, you're thinking, okay, maybe we should work on that. And for me, when my understanding of the whole thing was based on you can't just resign and go to Bournemouth without Fulham being paid compensation. It doesn't work like that. And ultimately they, they did pay compensation. Um, so for, for, I think Fulham did did benefit from that. But Jack Jack Jack's right in terms of, you know, what he is as a coach and, and what was appealing. And I, I, my stance on Scott Parker is, and I, everyone knows because I say it all the time in, in terms of when, whenever we discuss it, but 
the way he left was leaves a sour taste. There's no doubt about that. And, and if he does get a bad reception on Friday night, that's you know that's why, understandable. Yeah. yeah, it's that's what's going to happen if you leave in those circumstances after relegation like that, where it outwardly seems to fuck the club want to keep you. There's not been you see the situation where he's clear looks like he's angling for a move somewhere else. Doesn't look good. Um, I still think overall last year he did a pretty decent job. And I know, I know it comes across as, oh, he's getting defended again. Um, By his failed. media. <sighs> yeah. yeah. But, like, <laughs> they, like, look, they, they failed last year. Like, there's no getting away from it. I'm not saying he did a good job because they failed. They, didn't, they should have stayed up with that squad. Yeah. They definitely should have said, look where those players are now. Anguise is tearing up at Napoli. Lookman's at Leicester. Um, Amina's at Nice. Like, that squad was good enough to stay in the Premier League, and it should have done. Um, but overall, you can see why a club like Bournemouth would want to pick up Parker by the way they changed their style, by the fact that most elements of their game was, were enough generally to win if they, did, if they used a goal scorer. And the most inexplicable thing was what happened with Mitrovic. The, the assumption was probably they didn't fit the style of play, but the one thing that sent them down was that they didn't take chances. Like Fulham created more chances than Tottenham did last year. So it's, it's one of those things, but you know, he's, he's got, it's done. And I think Bournemouth have got the coach they wanted. And I think Fulham have actually come out of it in a, in a really good position as well, because they've got a coach who's been able to lift some of these players to heights that they weren't able to reach with Parker style play. And there's no doubt that the football that Silver plays is far more exciting. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to come on to next, Peter, because that was more of the angle actually of your piece was the difference that Silver's made at Fulham. Obviously, yes, it was slightly centered around what happened with Scott Parker. It was important for the context of the piece, but actually you digged more into what Silver's done with this team in terms of increasing their attacking output. And some of the stats that you found in every single department attacking wise this is a better team, not only than last year, that's not too hard, but even two years ago where we were all right going forward and the numbers that this team are pulling in under silver are streets ahead of where we were two years ago going forward. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's it, the, the interesting thing is both Fulham and Parker played a sort of a 4 3 3 but with the difference, and, and they were both sort of played build-up play, both quite relatively structured in terms of what they do. Parker far more structured than, than what Silver is, and that's where I'd say there's a difference. But Fulham are so much better now at making use of possession. I think the one stat that I highlight, I think, is I think it's average sequences, so which is, you know, I think it's 10 plus passes that end up resulting in a shot compared to just the amount of time that they have on the ball. And they average about 10.2 seconds per passing sequence. And it's the same under Parker as it is under Silver now, but just they create about four shots from those passing moves compared to three per game which is a massive difference. And then you can see the attacking numbers, just how they roll off off the back of it. Um, and Fulham just are a more well-rounded team. We talked about set pieces. You can score from set pieces. They didn't really do that under Parker as much as there was a playoff final success was on it. They didn't, they didn't do this to the same extent, not, not, not even close. Um, and then defensively as well, which you just wouldn't expect when you see the, the numbers that the Fulham are putting in. We saw the run of five clean sheets. Now, of course, there are caveats. You know, we are halfway through the season. This squad is better than the one Parker had two years ago. I don't think that that's not really debatable, but there, there is quite clearly a step up. And it's, as we mentioned before, there are players in that squad who are playing at levels they haven't done before. And I think that's quite telling in terms of what, what output Marco Silva is getting from them. Mitrovic, Jean-Michel Seri at Fulham in, in any case. 
Naiskin's Cabano. Um, Tim Ream's playing a very good standard as well. I didn't mention him so much in the piece, but he is. Um, there are a lot of players he's getting a lot more out of. And, and yeah. that's that's what's really so striking about the, the difference. Yeah. And just looking ahead from the a Fulham team point of view for Friday, Jack, um, what lineup we assume that everyone we know is is fit. I, I, I'm going to guess that it's Chalabar, Cavalero, Stansfield, who are still out. And we don't exactly know what state we are with the illnesses. But again, you'd think it's illness. We're a week on. They've had six days. Most people are probably going to be recovered that need to be. What changes, if any, would you like to see Fulham go with on uh, on Friday night? Look, I, I know we spoke at the start of the podcast about the fact that we didn't want, well, not didn't want, but we're a little bit surprised at the lack of rotation, given there was a midweek game and given that there were injuries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, yes, I think there are changes. I'd like to see Kenny Tete come back in um, and I'd probably like to see Bobby Reed come back in, although I'm not quite sure for who, because I think that, that Fabio has been very impressive the last couple of games. Um, don't think Harrison Reed's been brilliant um it's for a couple of games now um has struggled a little bit but i'm not sure if you could if you can risk playing a, a kind of pivot of well reason bobby reed and john mckell seri if it's just a little bit um risky given given this is a very good side um so i think tete will come back in i think that's um i think that's something that we can assume is relatively close even though i thought dennis did all right to be honest um right back i've been critical at some points uh, this season of his, of his performances i thought he was okay at preston um but yeah i, I would like to see bobby reed back in I, I think he's been really impressive um this season and just obviously that versatility is useful off the bench but also um i just think he provides a real thrust and drive uh, to this team so i think maybe bobby for fabio um and Bobby for Fabio and, and Tete for Adoy would be my two changes, perhaps. That's a big call on Bobby. Um, Peter, your thoughts on the on the lineup and what Fulham um, need to do to get the result? I, I share Jack's um, difficulty in making changes. and I, I, I think you're right. I mean, the rotation thing on Preston, I think that applies to that game, but I don't think it applies here in terms of the rest. Um, I, I, I thought Dennis Adoy did quite well. I actually thought he was probably the best performer in that back line at Preston. I mean, it wasn't the best performance. Yeah. Obviously, Tim Ream scored, but um, I thought Adoy was pretty consistent in in that game. And you can see why he's been able to to sort of keep his place. Um, but yeah, if you were going to make a change, maybe Kenny Tete back in, as, as Jack said. Um, midfield is so difficult. It, it, it comes down to that question of do you do you allow for... Does Bobby Deckard overread? provide the same bite that Reed will do around Seri. You know, Silver's talked already about how Seri does need someone who can do that sort of biting, whether that's Reed or, or Chalabar who fit that sort of profile. Um, I probably would only make one change, I think. Um, and it would probably be a reluctant one if it's Dennis, because I think Dennis has, has done okay. So yeah, I, we talked about rotation. You complained about rotation before, but for this one, yeah, it's, it's such a big game. I, I would probably play the team that's, kept Fulham unbeaten really yeah that would be for me as well as much as I I, I, I agonise over Bobby Deckard over Reed. I really do I feel like it's the most harsh dropping of the season because he was absolutely fantastic in so many of our massive games but you've then got Fabio Carvalho back and all of his talents I can't be dropping him I, I, I just cannot in this game 
he will thrive under the pressure and the big lights. He seems to, he seems to rise to the occasion. And um, I would go with, with Carvalho. I, but if it was Decade over Reed, I would also be like absolutely fine. And yeah, Tete for a doy also seems like a fairly inevitable change. But yeah, otherwise for me, it'd be Rodak, Robinson, Reen, Tosin and Tete at the back. The pivot of Seri and Reed. You need, you need Reed in this game. You can't put Seri and Kearney, I don't think, uh, in this. But look, you could bring on Kearney if we were in a good position going into the second half. I wouldn't be opposed to that. I would have Cabano, Carvalho, Wilson, but I would bring on Decadova Reed if there is really any issue, like either you're chasing a goal or even if we're looking to kind of protect things, I think that Bobby Decadova Reed is a fantastic option off the bench. And then obviously Mr. Mitro up top, who is going to want to score seven goals in this game if he absolutely can, because he would love nothing more. I mean, Jack, do we think if Mitro scores, we might see an Adebayor um, <laughs> running to the other end, past Parker, <laughs> hand to his ear? I probably hope so. Um yeah, no, probably not. He'll probably just we'll probably just get the Mitrovic celebration and he'll give it large to the fans, won't he? So it'd be nice. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, look, it'd be great. It'd be funny, but probably not, no. <laughs> All right, well, it's a huge game. 7.45 on Friday. It's on Sky if you can't make the match. The match is sold out. The tickets are going like hotcakes. The uh, the Twitter black market is is up and running um, for, for this game. And uh, I also, I've got to give a huge shout out to people on Twitter. I put a little tweet out the other week saying that I was looking for an R seat to take my dad to this game because he's just had knee surgery. I must have had about like half a dozen people tweet me within minutes offering seats and stuff. Um, I just felt really like humbled by that because it was really lovely that people were actually trying their best to kind of help my dad and I out in that situation. So um, fortunately, we've managed to sort it. A lovely guy called Dave got in touch and we've got it solved. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much. It was a really, really nice moment um, for so many people for so many people to get in touch. And even if people couldn't help, they shared it, etc. So thank you for that. Anyway, we're going to take a break. Afterwards, got some emails. <laughs> Part three of the Fulhamish podcast, Sammy James with Peter Rutzler and Jack Collins. So in the last kind of month or so, I've been saving up your emails for the Thursday pod. And naturally, this means that we're now getting a lot more emails. Hello at fulhamish.co.uk if you want to send me an email. I don't always reply to them on the email, but I, I put them in a little word document and I save them up for um, the Thursday podcast. Uh, this first one is for Tim Clark, who actually is part of the Fulhamish writing team for my new section, which I'm going to call this will catch on. Um, and it's, we seem to have weekly, um, suggestions of chance to us. I don't know. We have no control whether chance gets sung or not, but I'm happy to kind of read them and I'll rate them as to the likelihood of this catching on. Um, this one was, I'm going to put this out there, but if people are after a song for Marco Silva, surely Maxwell's silver hammer by the Beatles would work pretty well. No, maybe no one actually cares, but the phrasing works pretty pretty seamlessly, easy to sing, well-known, etc. Um, Jack, I'm going to um, counter the well-known. Um, I know a few Beatles songs. I'd like to think I know maybe more than average. This one, no, never heard of it. it yeah, it was like pretty well-known. I was like, I'm not 100% sure I'm with you though. I have heard the song, but um, well-known would be a statement that I would not stand by, I'm afraid. Um, someone's been watching Get Back which is, is what I can tell you about this. Someone's been watching Get Back and therefore um, has, has seen what's going on in these on, on the B-sides. But yeah, it's, um, I mean, look, it's a good shout, but it's, it's not going to. It's a two out of 10 for me. It's not going to catch on, but it's a great chant. 
but this is all cool. This this will catch on. I'm giving I'm giving people the likelihood of whether it will catch on. Um, so Tim, thank you for the suggestion. Keep the chance suggestions coming in, and I will uh, I will happily rate them or slate them. Just be prepared. Uh, next one from David Smith says, "Hi team, I was naturally inclined to support Coventry against Bournemouth last weekend, as Bournemouth are our nearest rivals, as well as the obvious Scott Parker factor. I saw you had the same approach. However, is it actually more important that the teams behind the top two don't catch up? Apart from bragging rights are there any real benefits for finishing the season in first rather than second eg how much money is at stake or is the only thing that matters making sure we finish in the automatic spots thank you david peter your thoughts on uh, david's suggestion i don't know the, uh, the specifics of the finances but i think it pales in comparison to what it means to be in the premier league in terms of television rights for going up um so in that sense not really that relevant um i think it's a fair point I think the most important gap is not first to second, it's first to third. Fundamentally, the job is to to go up. So, yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, going up is one thing, winning the league is another. And I think, you know, considering the way Fulham are playing, you'd like a crown, you'd like it to be crowned in some way. Um, And it would be all the sweeter if it's pipping Bournemouth. For me, it's like, what's the point of winning anything? You know, if it just boils down to money, no, it, it, yeah, it doesn't really matter. First versus it's a second. Trophy. It's a title, isn't it? How often do you win yeah. the title? Yeah, it's the second division. We haven't won a trophy, apart from the Intertoto, I'm sorry, in 21 years since the championship. That's our last actual trophy. The playoff is not a trophy. It's It, it, it kind of is, but it's not really. So it's a chance of Can we win the something. Traditions Cup one summer? The Cup of Traditions? Probably. <laughs> probably won an Asian Cup or something in 2006 I'm sure as we well won the Cup I've... of Traditions ones. Um, yeah, we I mean, I'm yeah. with it though. I think this is, I, I think the, the point is absolutely spot on, isn't it? Like, yes, there's like love of it. And yes, there's it, but Fulham need to go up automatically. And and that is the truth. And look, I think the the the, the kind of reaction that we're getting, et cetera, et cetera, is, uh, is because of the way that Fulham dropped points and then obviously Bournemouth dropped points. So there's obviously that like feel of this is more important, right? Because at that exact moment, if you looked at that game in complete isolation, you'd be probably looking at it and going, it doesn't really matter what happens here in terms of, but just because Fulham had already dropped points, it felt massive that Bournemouth then didn't leapfrog Fulham. And actually, I think Sammy, you were saying this last week that we really want to be ahead of Bournemouth when Fulham played them because otherwise sit in, play for the draw, you could have come in, come to the cottage. I imagine, look, lots, we've talked about lots of teams coming to the cottage and playing for the draw. And I'd imagine that if you offered Scott Parker a point now, he'd say, thanks very much, I'll take it. But even more so if they were already above us, right? Yeah. They're even more so because it keeps their position on top. It holds their form, like all of, all of the above. So I think there is now a kind of, there is extra element, an extra incentive for them to come out and try and play a little bit more to try and get back to the top of the table, um, which should suit Fulham because we tend to do better against teams who want to actually have a go. So, so maybe there's that kind of element to it too. Uh, the next one from Tim Miller uh, at Londinium Calling on Twitter. He said, I know he had a poor game at Preston, but according to Bill Edgar, the Times' football stats man, Mitrovic's goal per minute ratio at international level, excluding penalties, is the second highest in Europe in the last 50 years, behind Lukaku, but ahead of Ronaldo. In view, in the, in view of this eye-watering statistic, would you agree that the debate as to whether Mitro can cut it in the top level is over and Scott Parker can be catapulted into the Fulham Hall of Shame alongside Laurie Sanchez and Felix Maggot. Mitro may not have matched Fulham's style of play in the Premier League, but that's only because under Parker, our style was not to score any goals. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
I love it. It's like the exact opposite email from the one we got a couple of weeks ago about <laughs> criticizing Parker too much. It's like the exact opposite. So look, yeah, in 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 many ways, well, look, Mitrovic scored double figures the last time Fulham were in the Premier League, not under Scott Parker, right? In another relegation season. I don't think the argument holds weight that he's not good enough to do it in the Premier League. Um, last year, he didn't score because he didn't get any games. Um, and when he scored at international level, when he scored at championship level, when he scored pretty much everywhere he's been, he, he's done it. So, I mean, I, I agree in that I don't think that the argument carries any weight. Uh, I just think it's a it's a question of stylistic natures. And look, you can't blame some, you know, some strikers don't work for certain players. And you can talk about... Pep Guardiola not liking Zlatan Ibrahimovic doesn't make Zlatan Ibrahimovic a bad footballer uh, and it doesn't make Pep Guardiola a bad coach uh, you know those two things are just some, sometimes just not compatible and it clearly didn't work between Parker and Mitrovic and that's where we're at with it and, and I don't think that debate needs much more uh, weight to it I'm pretty comfortable with the suggestion that Mitrovic can do it wherever he's given service yeah, yeah. I completely agree like it's just I mean it's oh. Jack said it. We don't want to give it too much more um, discussion, but you, you can't make an assessment of Mitrovic in the top flight. He hasn't had the, the circumstances. But I just, yeah. Maybe we'll yeah. see next year. Hopefully we will. In terms of yeah, one this- chain, that's, that's, your, that's everyone's own decision, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think to compare him to Sanchez and Felix McGath is um, is strong. Neither of them won at a playoff final in against Wembley against Brentford, but you know each to your own. If you want to stick them in the room one hundred and one of Fulham managers, then um, then be my guest. Uh, Mark in California, I, I also emails on this point. Uh, he says um, hello to the three of you, Sammy. I request these two questions to be read on your Thursday show because I really trust your judgment. Um, but I'm going to just go for question two, where he says. Personally, I am done with the question, can Mitro play in the Premier League? There is a certain lounge on the grounds named after one Brian McBride. And whilst I believe McBride was probably a quicker player, his game really mirrored Mitro and he did just fine in the Prem. Um, basically, I think he's saying that Mitro deserves a lounge. And uh, yeah, nothing could be more true. That was um, actually quite a long time ago, though. I will, I, will, I will caveat that with this. Like, you know, We've seen eras of different type of players change across the years. Um, McBride's era was was a lot more physical, a lot more crosses whipped into the box. As you know, we we were seeing a lot more aerial things won. So there is that element of it. I'm not to disagree with the point. Um, well, I think that Mitrovic can't hit the Premier League, but I, I I would just slightly caveat that Brian McBride played in a different era to to what uh, Alexander Mitrovic is playing in now. Yeah. Um, Jack, I know you've seen this email. Um, it was very uh, directed at me. Yeah, it's good vibes. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. From Matt Littlejohn. Uh, it was basically the title of the email was Sammy, I want to hear your opinion on this. Um, I was like, OK, what's this? <laughs> Um, he first of all says that he's a huge fan of Fulhamish. Uh, he lives in Washington, D.C., and he depends on the pod and the athletic as he knows no other Fulham fans here. Uh, his wife and kids are perplexed at his sudden accidental devotion to the Whites and why he's suddenly laughing when listening to the pod and yelling at the TV early on Saturday mornings. He said, Sammy, here's my question. Why do you think Joe Bryan should start over Anthony Robinson? Can you say why in terms of numbers, offence, defence, etc.? I am, no surprise, a US men's national team fan and on Team J. Jedi, and I am perplexed and worried by the increasing amount of hate Anthony Robinson is getting from the fan face. 
As far as I can tell, the argument is that Joe is a better crosser, which I think is probably correct. To me, the thing is that Anthony sends in a ton more crosses because he's faster and stronger and also frees up the Cabano with his overlapping runs, whereas Joe never gets upfield and sends in about one cross a game. And Joe, Joe is worse in defence and in the air other than maybe one-on-one coverage where he is kind of all square. What am I missing? Thanks, Sammy. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, so- he's got a point. I mean, it's the. I feel like it was the grilling of Sammy James. Um, I was reading my own <laughs> death note there. Um, I didn't. I, I mean, I just say that I've been frustrated with Robinson's passing and 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 some of his technical ability in the last few games. I see why Anthony Robinson plays, and I I can definitely agree with you that he does free up Cabano. I would argue that it's not just because Anthony Robinson puts more crosses into the box. I just think that Joe Bryan as an attacking outlet is fantastic and his relationship with Mitro was brilliant. But I also do see that a Anthony Robinson's defending generally is better than Joe's. And also if we're going to go up next season, that Anthony Robinson would be better for us in the Premier League where we're going to have to do a lot more defending and Robinson's pace will be absolutely crucial to, to our style of play. So I don't know if I ever fully said I am 100% team Joe, but I will take the point on the chin. Thank you. And uh, my dressing down has been served. I just think there's a there's a fair point to be made here in that whilst I love Joe Bryan, like uh, to, to bits, and uh, I will always be grateful to him. And to be honest, I reckon he should probably get a statue up. Um, you know, we can, we, can, we can discuss the ins and outs of what it is. Um, but ultimately, I think the, the question is, who do I want to start more games? The answer to that question is Anthony Robinson. But I want to see a bit more rotation. And that's what I struggle with, right? That It's not that I think that Joe Bryan should be starting every game. And to be honest, when there's a week break here, I wouldn't change the, I wouldn't change the left backs. I wouldn't switch it around for this next game coming up. Um, I, I think that Robinson's defensive work rate is excellent. I think that his pace getting forward allows us to stretch the pitch more. Um, I think he play a little bit wider um, when he's in the team. And I think that helps us. Um, but I do think that there is also space to rotate a left back because we have two very competent um, left backs in this division who are, you know, almost any other team in the division would be starting both of. Um, and I, I think just given that fact, we could probably do with a little bit more rotation just because you don't want to see someone like Robinson burn out. And I think that's what we have seen a little bit of in, in, in the times before. And, you know, his pace and that ability to drive forward and get at people is a massive asset for Fulham, but not if you use it all up, right? You have to keep him fit. You have to keep him healthy. You have to keep him in, you know, the pro- the form that he wants to be in. And I think you can do that by rotating a little bit more. That's all I would probably say on it. I think Jack's point is spot on because this is sort of a debate that's sort of emerged and gets quite fierce when I think it's actually a little bit more nuanced. And as Jack says, it's just a case of, yeah, I think Anthony Robinson should be first choice. I think there's more, there's a ceiling there. You can see how he, as as you as the as the listener said, you know, in terms of how he helps Niskin's Cabana on that left hand side, provides width, it's got pace, his crossing's got better as well. I think that's worth acknowledging too. But there are moments where you just want Joe Bryan to play. I think post Blackpool we've got a spike, and post post Preston we'll get a spike in that sentiment because both occasions Robinson, well, first time was come back from international duty. This time, you know, you come out and Silver said he's been ill. There's a two day, two and a half day, three day turnaround. And again, there's a scope for rotation and you just, the question is, why? Why is Joe Bryan not playing? And I guess, I guess that's one for me to ask Marco Silva, I suppose. 
<laughs> yeah, I just I I have been perplexed why Joe Bryan hasn't been used more this season. It did feel like though Joe Bryan did kind of start getting a bit of a run. I, I think it might have been the Swansea game where he started and then got injured and. That was unfortunate for Joe because just as I think he'd maybe started to worm his way back into the plans. Potentially. Remember he slid into the post. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. I knew he'd got injured against someone. So yeah, that was maybe the moment where Joe's season maybe slipped away. But it seemed perplexing to me that he didn't wasn't using either of the recent two games, particularly with Anthony Robinson ill. Um, maybe Joe Bryan was iller and just Marcus Silva never told us. But that is also possible. We'll never know. Um, Matt's also gave the story of how he became a Fulham fan, which was uh, very interesting. Long story short, he went to go both watch Chelsea and Fulham on a time that he came over uh, from the States because he knew some Chelsea fans, but he also went to a Fulham game. He came back thinking he was a Chelsea fan and then slowly over the years, he, he seemed to learn the error of his ways. And he just said that he related more uh, to Fulham um, he said they're long suffering, self-deprecating, funny, loyal, optimistic, and ready to enjoy the moment. I really did not want to become a fan, but I did. My friend Michael is thrilled because as he said, Fulham are a proper English football team and because it means I'm not a Chelsea fan. So uh, well done for learning the error of your ways. And I'm sorry uh, that I uh, dared to slate Anthony Robinson. The final one is a guy called Michael has sent me a horn for the next time that I'm allowed to use it. Um, he sent me the horn that they use at the 49ers match whenever they score a touchdown at home. I've listened to the horn. It's a fantastic horn and I will use it the next time that I'm allowed to play the horn. I was going to ask this, Jack, am I allowed to play the horn on the weekend if we beat Bournemouth? If we beat Bournemouth by more than one goal, I think. Yeah. I think I think that's it. I think it's if you get like a two nil, three nil, you know, it, that's what it feels like to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, come I don't on, know, maybe I'm wrong. I think you know, if it's ten unbeaten, you've beaten Bournemouth. There's a four point gap to to second. That's probably hornworthy territory, isn't it? Fine, fine. probably okay, in the conversation, but I think it needs to be two or more guards. I think it needs to be relatively convincing, or yeah. like a last minute winner. You know, either, it needs to be either dramatic or convincing. Okay. They're, them the rules. I will abide by them. Um, we've been kind of adapting the horn rule as we go out um, throughout the season. So uh, thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for listening today. That is the end of the podcast. Uh, a bit of a rambly one. Thank you so much for your emails. Please do send in more. Hello at fullamish.co.uk. Really enjoying this um, last bit of the show where we read uh, some of your wonderful letters and, and correspondence. Uh, it's great uh, for us to have. It really brightens up our week as well when we get some of the emails through. Um, just kind of popping through just for us to just amuse ourselves on the train or whatever we're doing in our day. So thank you so much for that. Jack Collins, thank you very much for being on the pod today. Thank you, Sammy. I cannot wait to hear Maxwell's silver hammer being wrung out from the Hammersmith end this weekend. <laughs> I know. It's going to put me to shame when everyone in the back of the hammy end really, you know, goes to town just to prove me wrong that that's no way going to catch on. Uh, and Peter, enjoy the Rutzler derby. I, I will savour it. I'll savour every moment. I'll sit there and I'll get there two hours before kickoff and just sit there and then just soak it all in. I'll tell you what we can start if um, if we're up 3-0 at 70 minutes uh, is Peter Rutzler. He left because you're shit. <laughs> 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 oh.
Oh my God. I'll be singing it. <laughs> it might just be me, but I'll be there at the back of H4 uh, with my dad in, in crutches, uh, singing it uh, large to the whole of the uh, stadium. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back on Sunday reviewing the Bournemouth game, whatever happens, hopefully with three points in the bag and an important win for the Whites. But until then, have a great weekend and up the Whites on Friday. You Whites. Right.